Um, let's turn now to the book of Daniel. Um, you'll find it on page 758 of the Bibles on the chairs there. I'm starting at Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thanks, Jono. 
Uh, well, good morning. My name is Andy. If I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you either at morning tea or at the newish lunch. Um, yeah, please stick around. We'll cater for pretty much every diet you can think of, including the Daniel diet. Um, and yeah, we'll be meeting just in the room where we have Crash just behind me here at 12 o'clock. So please stick around. Uh, but keep Daniel 1 in front of you. And how about we pray as we get into it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement from Biplang, uh, who seeks to live out your word in this uh, hostile place that we live in Wellington. Um, and we pray for opportunities, Lord, to be uh, your people in this land. We pray now as we look at this part of your word that we'd be encouraged in that and in many other things as your spirit desires. And so we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm not someone who's easily offended. Um, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. Um, some of my unbelieving friends, when I'm having a conversation with me, they, they'll say, oh, I'm not sure if this might offend you. But, uh, or I'll be chatting to some people. I, I do a free coffee on Thursday mornings on Tory Street to try and meet people. And um, some of the, particularly the rougher sort of guys, will, will drop the F-bomb. And they'll be like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. They didn't want to offend me. But it's, it's fine, man. Don't worry about it. Um, but I'm going to get something off my chest this morning. Um, you guys can help me work through this. Um, there's this button that you can press that really will offend me. Uh, and that's if you call me an Australian. <laughs> um, now, I know there are some Aussies in the room, and we love you. Uh, I particularly love one of you more than most, um, more than anyone else. Uh, my wife is Australian. Um, and actually, I have to admit it, I am kind of Australian. I, I'm an Australian citizen. I have an Australian passport. Uh, my mom's Australian. I lived there for more than half my life. I think I can say less than half now that I've been in Wellington for three years. Um, I, I still say things like thongs or doonas instead of jandals and duvets. Is it duvet or just duvet? More do? Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> But I just want to clear this up for everyone in the room, okay, so you don't press my buttons. I'm a New Zealander. I'm a Kiwi. Um, I was born in Auckland. Uh, I grew up in Auckland. Uh, this is my homeland. And I definitely support the All Blacks. I would never support the Wallabies. Uh, if you really want to offend me, ask me which rugby team I support. Uh, anyway. Um, in Australia, they love nicknames, right? And Andrew is a very common name, so no one gets called Andrew in Australia. Do you know what my nickname was in Australia? Anyone? It was Kiwi. Everyone called me Kiwi. I was the token Kiwi. Uh, in fact, a bunch of international students at the church, the uni church we were at, they thought that was the name my parents gave me because um, no one called me Andrew. And so imagine how it felt coming back to New Zealand with a slightly Australian accent with this name Kiwi. It just... I don't know where my home is anymore. Uh, which actually, if we're a Christian, that's actually really helpful, isn't it? Because if I'm a follower of Jesus, then my home isn't Auckland or Australia or New Zealand or Lower Hutt. Our home is in heaven. That's what Paul said in Philippians, isn't it? If, if you've just joined us recently, we've recently just been working through uh, Philippians. We've finished our Philippians series. But in 3.20, Philippians 3.20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, 
And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see where our home is as Christians? Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through. We're foreigners living here in this strange land. So you might be as Kiwi as they come, which, you know, more Kiwi than me, that's not saying much. Uh, but if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. And, and that means you have a new citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven. And so in some sense, we have a parallel here in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's help, helpful for working out what it means to live in the world but not of the world. Have you heard that question before? What does it mean to live in the world, but not of the world? In other words, what does it mean to live in this earthly world without becoming consumed by it, to live here, but to long for our heavenly home? And this is the question facing Daniel and his mates as they're taken away from their home in Jerusalem to a far-off city in Babylon. So let's get started with some context. Uh, the year is 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, invades Jerusalem. He takes captive many of the royal family and the king, and he carries them off to Babylon. And he also steals a bunch of stuff from the temple of their god uh, to put his trophies of conquest in the Babylonian god's temple. Well, there's multiple gods, right? Now, if you know anything about ancient history, well, at first glance, this just seems like a pretty typical scenario for the ancient Near East, right? One kingdom takes over another, empires rise and fall, cities get invaded, not that big a deal. Happens all the time, right? But if you know anything about biblical history, you'll know this is a huge deal for Israel, for the people of God. Because you see, Jerusalem is not just any city. Jerusalem was the city of David. And David was the king that God promised would have a throne forever. And Jerusalem wasn't just home to the king of Israel. Jerusalem was the dwelling place of God in the temple. And so for Jerusalem to be overthrown and even God's holy dwelling place, the temple, to be ransacked, that was a huge deal. But as, as much as it was a huge deal, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. See, right back before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses warned them that if they disobeyed God, if they followed other gods, then God would abandon them and send them into exile. And not just Moses, ever since Moses, time and time again, the prophets had warned, stop sinning against me, stop rebelling, stop worshipping false gods, or I will send you away into exile. I'm going to raise up your enemies to defeat you. And this is exactly what is happening at the start of Daniel. This exile is a huge deal. After years and years of warning them, after years and years of disobedience and unfaithfulness, prostituting themselves with other gods, it's a huge deal, but it should have come as no surprise. See, from Babylon's perspective, their gods have helped them defeat the God of Israel and the nation of Israel. And they have the articles from the temple to prove it. But who caused the defeat of Jerusalem? Did you see that? At the start, look in verse 1 with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Do you see who it is that hands Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar? God's patience has run out. And so he gives Jerusalem, the king, other important nobles, and even things from his own temple into the hands of the Babylonians. And so Daniel and his friends are part of this group from Jerusalem that have been sent as captives back to Babylon. These were the best and brightest of society. In fact, Daniel and his three friends were the best and brightest. Have a look with me from verse 3. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. See, Daniel and his mates were the best, best and brightest that Jerusalem had to offer. They're good-looking, they're smart, they're from high-ranking families, and so they're off to uni in Babylon to be trained up as advisors to the king himself. And all this method that the king has implemented for these exiles, it's all an attempt to assimilate them into the Babylonian world, to rid them of their Jewishness. See, they're chosen at a young age while they're still impressionable. And they're given new names, new identities. Uh, Notice how each of their Hebrew names ends with the syllable El or Yah, which points to the name of God, Yahweh or Elohim. Their new Babylonian names replace the God of Israel with the gods of Babylon. So you might not be able to read it, but um, Daniel means God is my judge. And the Babylonians rename him Belteshazzar. May Bel protect his life. Hananiah, God is gracious. which means, And they change it to Shadrach under the command of Aku. Mishael, who is like God, to Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah. God has helped to Abednego, slave of Nergal. Do you see how they're trying to change these young man's identity? These Hebrew boys' names were named after their God. They were dedicated to him by their parents. And like precious gold treasures ransacked from the temple of Yahweh, stolen by the Babylonians, claimed by their gods, the same thing has happened to these four men. Devoted to God, now to be devoted to Babylon and the gods of Babylon. You belong to us now. But they underestimate these Jewish boys, don't they? See, even though their nation is in ruins, these boys' city has been defeated. They've been cast out by God in judgment. And the riches of Babylon, well, they might have been appealing. All this effort to assimilate them... No, these boys' loyalty is with their God, Yahweh. And Daniel, in particular, he's a shining example of integrity, isn't he? Courageous 
integrity and faith. Let's have a look from verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I want us to look at three characteristics of Daniel's integrity here. It's there in your outlines. Uh, Firstly, Daniel's loyalty. Secondly, his leadership. And thirdly, his wisdom. So firstly, Daniel's loyalty. See, why is it that Daniel draws the line at food? They've changed his name. They've brought him into the king's service. Now, is it that he's a vegetarian? Or a a teetotaler? He doesn't like eating meat or drinking alcohol? Does he have some kind of nutritional insight uh, ahead of his time? Should we all get on the Daniel diet? Uh, This has been advocated by by many people. Um, Perhaps you've come across the Daniel fast, the 21-day fast from Daniel uh, chapter 10. Uh, Chris Pratt made this popular, apparently, if you go, yeah, the Daniel fast. Um, Well, no, Actually, if you read chapter 10, it implies that Daniel ate meat and drank wine, and he abstained from that out of mourning. Uh, So maybe it's just the Jewish food laws, right? There there were unclean foods that the Jews weren't supposed to eat. Well, that's possible. Um, We can get rid of Pratt now. Um, (laughs) The the Babylonians loved pork. Sometimes they even ate horse, um, which was forbidden. Uh, But... If this was just about the food laws, couldn't Daniel and his friends just have left the pork on the side of their plate and waited for the chicken or the beef to come? Uh, And plus wine. Wine was definitely not forbidden by the Jewish people. Think of what Jesus turned water into uh, as a Jew and shared at his last supper. So it's not just about the food laws. Now, there's something else about sharing in the king's table that Daniel felt would defile him. And now some have hypothesized that it must have been sacrificed to idols. Uh, Now that's possible. But what I think is more likely going on here is Daniel is showing where his loyalty lies. He's tolerated the exile, the education, the name change, but he draws a line at sharing food with the king to be included at the king's table. See, sharing food with someone, particularly in Jewish culture, that was an act of friendship saying, I am at peace with you. And so Jews did not share food with non-Jews, especially those who'd captured them, if they had the choice. You actually see this becoming a problem for Peter in the New Testament. He starts to go back to his old ways of only having meals with Jewish people. But by refusing to eat the king's food, Daniel is showing here where his loyalty lies. He's resolved not to turn into a Babylonian. And it's risky business, right? I mean, if the chief official is afraid of losing his head for letting them, imagine how the king would treat Daniel and his friends if he found out. But Daniel is a child of the living God. And so this is where he draws the line. It's an inspiring picture of living in the world, but not of the world, right? In a powerless situation, Drawing a line, not compromising. That's his loyalty. The second characteristic I want us to look at is his leadership. Now, this is more subtle, but you can see it if you look closely. Notice who it is who resolves not to defile himself. The author could easily have written, but Daniel and his three friends resolve not to defile themselves. But he doesn't, does he? 
It says, but Daniel chose not to defile himself. It's Daniel who speaks to the chief official, makes the arrangement with their guard. It's Daniel who takes this initiative to stand up and find a way to avoid the king's food. Now, I wonder what would have happened to those Jewish boys if Daniel hadn't spoken up. Because often that's what it takes, isn't it? Especially for young people. They're looking for that guy or girl in their group of friends who's going to take the initiative, who's going to make the decision, who's going to set the agenda for the direction they'll follow. An influencer, perhaps. See, what if Daniel hadn't said anything? Think about it. A bunch of teenagers away from their parents, away from the constraints of Jerusalem and these petty food laws, they're surrounded by all these other fit young people getting excited about this amazing banquets they're going to enjoy. What if the influencer in the group was actually like, well, that bacon actually does smell quite good and I've always wanted to try it. Come on, who, no one's going to notice. Can't hurt just to have a little taste. What would have become of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? What if they'd conformed just a little, lost track of their Jewish origins? And by Daniel 3, when they're confronted with an image to bow down to or face a fiery furnace, well, they'll cave. See, people don't abandon God overnight, do they? It happens in small steps. Maybe it starts with a setback in life. Maybe not exile, but maybe losing a job or a key relationship or facing illness or suffering. Perhaps not even a setback. Perhaps it's just a major change like leaving home or moving cities. It's at that point our faith is really tested, isn't it? Will I remain loyal to God? Or am I going to take this as an opportunity to drift away? Maybe not dramatically to begin with. It starts with the little things. Oh, I can't hit hurt to skip community group for a couple of weeks because work is really busy. And, and this week, I've, I've been invited uh, for work drinks. And oh, that could be a really good evangelistic opportunity. So I'll just skip this week, but I'll go next week. But then the next week, you haven't been for so many weeks, it's kind of awkward and you don't really have a good excuse. And so it's easier just to drift away. Well, what a precious gift is a Daniel in your life at that point, right? That influencer, that initiative taker, that leader who'll send you that text saying, hey, I, I didn't see you at community group this week. Is everything all right? That person who knows you well enough to know that you're just making excuses to encourage you to get back on the horse. We all need Daniels in our life, don't we? And maybe you can be that Daniel to others, that uncompromising, loyal rock of faith for others to follow. Integrity like that, it's admirable, isn't it? It's aspirational. It's contagious. Maybe you're already an influencer. If people are naturally looking to you, you don't need to run from that. Embrace it. Recognize the influence you have, but use it for good to point people to Jesus. 
And this is our hope and our prayer for our kids as well, isn't it? In an increasingly hostile world, rather than swayed by society and compromised by the temptations of Babylon, standing firm and even influencing others positively. Think about it. How did Daniel get to this point? Who were the influences in his childhood? I'm not just talking to parents. We all have opportunities to speak into the kids' lives in our church whanau. So think about what you're modeling to the kids. So we've seen Daniel's loyalty, his leadership, but look to it as wisdom. See, I think it's possible to be uh, really zealous and loyal and proactive, uh, an initiative taker, a, a trailblazer, but incredibly unwise in how you go about it. But Daniel's no fool, right? He knows this is a delicate situation. To reject the gift of royal food from the most powerful person in the world, but he's determined not to defile himself. But he goes about it with tact and wisdom. He talks to the official that he knows he's in the good books with. That doesn't quite work, but he talks to the guard, and he, I, I'm guessing he probably uh, said, well, you know, something has to be done with this amazing food. If we don't eat it like you and your friends want it, um, something like that. Come on, guys, look, look what I scored from these Hebrew boys. Um, do you see Daniel's wisdom? He's completely devoted to God, but it's not without tact and knowing the ways of the world. And it pays off, doesn't it? After uh, 10 days of vegetables and water, they look healthier than the others. And again, I don't think this is nutritional advice necessarily. Uh, we can speculate about the saturated fats and the amount of alcohol that the Babylonians were eating. But we need to be careful not to rationalize the Bible and get rid of the supernatural, right? Because the next thing to say is this isn't about Daniel. God is the one at work behind Daniel, paving the way for him. Remember, it's God who sent these guys to Babylon. And notice how Daniel got in the chief official's good books. Verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. See, the success of Daniel and his friends, it comes from God. And we'll see this throughout the Daniel series. Daniel and his friends are great heroes of the faith. They're, they're shining examples of standing firm in the world, but not of the world. But we need to remember the real hero of the book of Daniel is God. And the other thing we need to remember as we're reading the Old Testament is that we can't just apply it straight to ourselves. Whenever we read and try and understand the Old Testament, we need to read it from where we are in history. That means looking at how it is fulfilled in the New Testament, particularly in Jesus. See, this side of the cross of Christ, we live in a different era in terms of God's plans for humanity. We're not Jews living in Babylon in 7th century BC. Now, there are parallels. For one, there is a sense in which we are living as foreigners in Babylon. The New Testament picks up on this Babylon imagery. We can call it 21st century Babylon, if you like. 
And the city we live in is moving further and further away from its Judeo-Christian roots, isn't it? It looks more and more like this Babylon with all the threats and temptations to compromise that come along with that. And so just as Daniel and his friends need to hold to their Jewish identity as citizens of Israel, we need to remember our citizenship is in heaven and not compromise by giving over to Babylon. So it's worth asking yourself this morning, do you look any different to the Babylonians around you? It's interesting when you run into someone at church from another sphere of your life, right? And you didn't realize they were a Christian. Maybe they're a school parent or a colleague. How long does it take before people know that you're a Christian? Now we need to do it with wisdom and tact, right? Otherwise, you might lose your job. You might get socially isolated. But I think our problem isn't wisdom and tact. Our problem is a lack of boldness. Maybe we need to renounce our Babylonian citizenship. But another key difference, uh, but a key difference, so that's the similarity, a key difference between Daniel and his friends and us is that although we might be foreigners, we're not exiles. We're more like ambassadors See, God hasn't sent us here out of judgment. No, he sent us here into this foreign land because of salvation. We have a different mission to Daniel and his friends. Both of us are trying to be in the world, but not of the world. But that's kind of where Israel's mission ended. Their mission was to be faithful until God brought them out of exile. But our mission in Babylon is to be ambassadors to declare the salvation of our God for the sake of our world. Not to hide from Babylon, but to seek to change Babylon. To call those around us to repent and believe before it's too late. Which means our key distinctive, the key thing that will identify us as citizens of heaven rather than citizens of Babylon, it's not so much our Christian values or morals, our Christian identity. The key distinctive ought to be our love for Jesus and our desire for those around us to to know him as their Lord and Savior. And so that puts in perspective the influence we might seek to have on society. Many of us here, like Daniel and his friends, have been given great learning, maybe of three years at an academic institution similar to Daniel, maybe more than that. And maybe you're in a position of influence, even over our nation, especially here in the capital, right? But some Christians look at, at how God gave Daniel this great standing as a leader in society, and they see that as a reason to go and pursue a career in government, to try and change the world for God's sake. Now, don't get me wrong, I think that's a great thing to do. And you can have a really positive influence on our society. But I don't think God is all that interested in making Babylon a better place. He has something far more radical planned for our nation and our world. 
See, one day soon, Christ will return in glory, in triumph, with trumpets and fires of judgment. He's going to destroy this world as we know it. And some of it will remain. But the people who will remain are those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. That's God's plan to redeem the world. So living in 21st century Babylon, our greatest priority, the greatest good you can do with the influence God has given you is to use your time, your money, your gifts, your opportunities to implore others to be reconciled to Christ. Sorry, reconciled to God through Christ. And remember in all of this, as with Daniel and his friends, it's God who's at work through you. He's promised to be with us always to the very end of the age. So how about we pray and ask for his help to be ambassadors in this world? Let's pray. Awesome God. We tremble at the future that awaits Babylon. We see Babylon in the Bible is defeated by other kingdoms. And we know that your judgment is coming. But as we wait for our heavenly home, Lord, we know that you have sent us here to be your ambassadors, to be in the world and not of the world. And so we ask, Lord, would you give us the boldness to stand firm for Jesus, to not compromise, to do what it takes to not become a Babylonian? And would you give us opportunities to keep holding out this great promise of salvation that Jesus offers before it's too late? We pray for any here that might be drifting. Would you call them back? Would you help us as a community to be like Daniel, taking the initiative to not compromise and to bring our friends along with us? And would you do this all for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if the musos would like to come up, we're going to um, respond uh, with a song, a, a great song devoting our, our lives to God. And so uh, will you stand with me? <laughs>